you know, we're living in the middle of this pandemic with masks, watching church online, school's different, grocery shopping's different, the gym's different, visiting family's different, everything's different. And we think that's a bad thing. What if we change the way we look at everything that's happening around us? I mean, if we're honest, isn't our frustration really because our routines have changed? And what makes us most frustrated is that we didn't actually change them. The change was forced upon us. And we're forced to own the fact that we're not in control. I mean, if you think back through life up until March, you went where you wanted to, when you wanted to, how you wanted to. You could fly wherever you wanted to. You could go see family. They could come see you. We were planning for summer trips and summer vacations and time away. And then it all got turned upside down by this disease that's caused so much anger, so much anxiety, so much depression, so much sickness. And it's put a strain on all of our relationships. But maybe what it broke most significantly is it broke our autopilot life. My biggest question is, is that really a bad thing? Now, please don't hear me say that this disease is a good thing, that people losing their lives and their jobs is a good thing, that economic stress is a good thing. However, is the shattering of our routines and our autopilot life really a bad thing. What about the shattering of our autopilot faith? You know what I mean? That faith that used to come to church on Sunday morning but now turns on the TV, watches, sings a couple songs, listens to some guy ramble on for 25 minutes, heads home, checks church off our to-do list. And when a neighbor says, why do you do that? Why do you watch church online? Why do you go to church online? Or why do you go to church in person? And we say, I don't know, it's just what our family does. According to Barna, a national research center, 40% of people who attended church prior to the pandemic have yet to engage with their church since it started. That was March, almost six months ago. Maybe the hardest truth for all of us to swallow in the midst of a pandemic is that our relationship with Jesus was on autopilot. We'd lost our excitement, we'd lost our passion, and our love, the love that we once had, had just fizzled out. And what the pandemic has shown us is that autopilot faith is broken. And I think that's exactly what happened to the church in Ephesus that Jesus writes to in Revelation chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible or your phone, pull it out. If you've got a Bible and you're not sure where Revelation is, it's super easy to find. Flip your Bible to the back cover, open it up, flip through the glossary, through the maps, through the table of weights. That book's Revelation. Keep flipping to the front until you get to chapter 2, verse 1. And that's where we're going to start out today. And Revelation might be one of the hardest books of the Bible to actually understand. It's got a lot of apocalyptic language, a lot of end times, a lot of prophecy, a lot of very poetic language, these images of things that we don't understand. And yet this super complicated book starts with an image of Jesus speaking to seven different churches. 
Now, he says that he's the one who holds the seven lampstands in there. We'll read that in just a minute. And those lampstands are a symbol for the church that he's talking to. But he's walking among these churches, and he's communicating his message to them. And in each of these seven messages, there's a congratulations, there's a correction, and there's an instruction. And so today, we're going to look at his words to the church in Ephesus. Now, before we dive into that, I want you to, I want to make sure you don't think something about biblical cities that I thought for a long, long time. And I still honestly, if, I, if I'm really honest, still think about it this way. I think when I read about towns in the Bible, I think about mud huts, dirt roads, more animals than people, probably more like a third world country than a fully developed country. I think about a few people living on a little block and they all have a couple sheep running around. But that's not at all what the city of Ephesus was like. The city of Ephesus was a political powerhouse. They housed a a Roman governor, and yet they were free from the Roman Empire. They were a major import city and export city, both by sea as they sit on the coast and by land as people would travel through Asia Minor or what is today modern-day Turkey. It's a center of worship. There was a temple to the, God, to the fertility goddess Artemis there. And that temple was so big it served as a bank for the kings of the day and merchants. It was an asylum for criminals and a place for prostitution for the priestess who served at this temple. So maybe instead of dirt roads, mud huts, and a small town, we'd be better off to think about Ephesus like we think about L.A., or New York City, or Miami. It was, a power, it was a city that dealt with all the modern struggles we deal with. Sex, power, politics, and money. And these are the words that Jesus speaks to the church there. He says, write this letter to the angel in the church of Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven altars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. You see, Jesus has a message of praise and congratulations for them. And that is, you have fought for the truth. You have stood for orthodoxy. And orthodoxy is just kind of a really big fancy word that says you've stuck to the rules. You've followed the religion. And I might say that's the biggest difference because it's not about a relationship. It was about following a set of rules. And the first thing we need to know, and the thing I want you to take home with you today as we close this time, is that autopilot faith needs to break as we prioritize our lives to love God and love others. Don't miss that. Autopilot faith needs to break as we prioritize our lives to love God and love others. So what Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus is he says, you have done such an incredible job at fighting for truth. He's praising them for this, and it is something that they should be praised for. Ephesus had long been a place where false teachers had come. Paul warned the 
leaders of the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. Guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Did you catch those phrases? Guard yourself. Vicious wolves will come. People will distort the truth. Watch out. But this church knew how to defend their faith. They knew how to answer all of the questions. They knew how to fight for truth. Having grown up in a conservative evangelical church my entire life, I can't help but wonder if as a church, maybe in our fight for truth, we've actually fought for the wrong things. We fight, I think, Sometimes to keep kids in our institutions. We fight for our view of faith. We fight to teach our kids to do good and try not to do bad. I even worked for one church once that the whole denomination decided that they were going to boycott Disney. Good luck. Disney's a huge corporation that owns more than we could ever imagine. I think in our fight for truth, sometimes we as a conservative church have fought for values without teaching why those values matter or even examining our own lives to stop and consider if they have anything at all to do with the gospel. Does it matter if we have public prayer in schools if we don't teach our kids and grandkids how to have a conversation with Jesus? Does it matter if the Ten Commandments hang in a public courthouse if we don't take the time to tell the next generation about who Moses was, about how he received the Ten Commandments, and about how those Ten Commandments point us to the truth of who Jesus is? Does it matter if we argue in a public square for the definition of marriage if we don't invest in the marriages of our friends and family to make sure they're healthy? You see, church, I think that we fight for the wrong things sometimes. This is what I've seen. I wonder what you've seen as you sit inside the church. But it's in fighting for those things that I think the world around us is turned off. They hear us talk about how important marriage is, and yet our divorce rate is higher inside the church than it is for those who don't have anything to do with the church. I wonder if maybe... We boil down the goal of all these things. It's really about church attendance and not about a relationship with Jesus. You see, there's nothing wrong for fighting for truth. There's nothing wrong with standing up for what's true. We just have to be careful how we do it and for what truth we stand up for. And we have to stand up for that truth in love. And I think that's where the Ephesians miss the mark. Take a look at verse 4 of Revelation chapter 2. Jesus again speaking to this church, and he says, But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. They'd abandon their love, their love for God, and their love for each other. 
They had fought long and hard for truth. They believed, yet in the midst of their fighting, they forgot what was most important. Not what I think is most important. What Jesus told them was most important. They'd forgotten that Jesus taught his disciples that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus ended that teaching time with the words, all of the law rests on these two commandments. Everything that you have fought for, everything that you've argued is true, everything you've wrestled with, is based on a love for God and a love for your neighbor. Now, my assumption is, because we believe the best about people, is that none of us wake up and thinks to ourselves, I wonder how I cannot love God today. I wonder what opportunities will come that I could treat my neighbor like garbage. However, I think if we're not careful... We don't intentionally do any of these things. The Ephesians didn't intentionally fall out of love with God or each other. But routine happened. They got busy. Life happens. How many times have you said, you know, I wish I could get to church, but I'm just too busy. Or I wish I had time to read my Bible, but I'm too busy. Or I wish I had more time to pray, but I've got this or that going on. I want you to think back with me to when you first started dating either your current uh, significant other or your partner and what that relationship was like. I have been with my wife, Corey, for 24 years now. That's an amazing number. Uh, I don't feel that old, but that's how long we've been together. 24 years, and I can still remember when we were in college and we started dating, Corey had the car at the time, so she would drive every time we went out. It was great. I never had to pay for gas. And she would drop me off at the dorm, and we're old enough that cell phones weren't really a thing at that time. And I knew that it took her about eight minutes to get from my dorm to her house. So she would drop me off. I'd go in. I'd spend a couple minutes talking to my buddies, and I'd go up to my dorm room. And I would wait for those eight minutes, and about the eighth minute, I would pick up the phone and call her house. And we would continue talking for an hour or 90 more minutes until it was time to go to bed. We just spent hours together, but we wanted more time together. And then after we'd been together for about 18 months, Corey, uh, I left to go to Buffalo, New York to work at camp. And Corey came with a bag, and it was a gift. And in that bag was a stack of stationery with some addressed envelopes and stamped envelopes so that I could write her letters while I was at camp. Now, she probably gave me this because she knew that If she didn't give it to me, I probably was not going to write a letter. I loved her, but writing letters is something I absolutely hate. But throughout the course of that summer, I wrote a letter a week, and then two, and then three. And about halfway through the summer, I had to go buy more stationery. I had to start addressing and buying stamps for my own envelopes as we sent letters back and forth and back and forth. And here's a box of those letters that she's kept. She probably kept them. Because she knew that after that summer was over, there weren't going to be very many more letters. Right? Life happens. We had kids. We have jobs. We have responsibilities. I don't know how many letters I've written her since that summer that we spent apart while I was in New York. I didn't mean to not write another letter. I didn't mean to not show Corey how much I love her through that. 
And this is actually the correction that Jesus speaks to the Ephesian church. You have lost your first love. You've lost sight of how much you used to love Jesus. You've forgotten the passion and excitement that came when you first began a relationship with Jesus. And I think this is important for us because we live in a world that has redefined love. In the world we live, love means I accept you where you are and I expect no more than that from you. You don't have to change anything, ever. Love means you can choose the way you live as long as it feels good for you, then I love you. And love means never, ever saying hard things that might challenge or upset you. I don't actually think this is what the Bible describes love as at all. And it's not the love that Jesus came and showed on the cross. I'm not sure how we got here. But true love is hard work. And it requires a lot from us. And I don't think anybody knows that more than parents during quarantine. We've had to love our kids. And I love my kids. And that's why I discipline my kids. That's why I correct my kids. That's why I push them to be better. In the words of Toby Mack, one of the most prolific Christian singers and songwriters of all time, he wrote these words in a song shortly after he, his dad passed away. I'm tired and I'm drained, but the fight in me remains. I'm weary, I'm worn, like I've never been before. This is harder than I thought, taking every part of me, so much harder than I thought it might be. But empty's never felt so full. This is what love feels like, poured out, used up, still giving, stretching me out to the end of my limits. This is what love feels like, poured out, used up, still willing to fight for it. That's what love looks like, poured out, empty, fighting, grasping, You see, as we teach truth, as we hold to the truth that we believe, we can't forget that the gospel is the greatest love story ever told. It's a story of a creator who knit us together, who made us uniquely to live in relationship with him, and we messed it up. And so he sent his son to step out of heaven, out of perfection, to come and live among us, to die on a cross, humiliated, to pay for the sins that we can't pay for so that we could be in relationship with him, now and forever. And it's that love that we've received from him that enables us to go and love our neighbor. It's that love that says, you know what? No matter what you believe, no matter how you behave, no matter whether we agree or not, I will love you. Because I've been loved by the God who walked alongside of me, who came and met me when I wasn't all cleaned up, when my life didn't look great, when I was doing things I'm not proud of. Church, how are we doing? Have we forgotten our first love? Have we forgotten how much we're loved by that God? And has that changed the way we love our neighbor? Not, how are we doing at loving God first? 
and really making sure we're pursuing him. Not loving what we get from God, but loving his presence in our lives. Loving the opportunities that we have to spend in time, prayer, talking to him. Loving the fact that we get to know him more through his word. Is that time driving us to love our neighbor? Those who look different, act different, believe different than us. Is it leading us to a place where our lives are poured out, used up for the sake of our neighbor? For the sake of those who don't know the God who loves them yet? That's what Jesus is saying to this church in Ephesus. And his instruction to them. Listen to it in verse 5. Turn back to me and do the work you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Jesus' instruction is threefold. Remember. Do you remember the passion you once had? Do you remember what I did for you on the cross? Do you remember how much you're loved by God? Then turn and repent. Repent's a big church word, but it's really pretty simple. Repentance is essentially walking in one direction, saying, I'm going this way, I'm going to do this thing, and if I repent, I turn around and I go in this direction. What Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus is, you've been walking this way for way too long. Losing, walking away from the God who loves you, walking away from me. It's time for you to turn around and walk back to me, to remember and then to respond in action. Now my kids get picked on way too much in my sermons. But how many times do your kids say to you, I'm sorry? Or do your grandkids say to you, I'm sorry? And then within 30 minutes, come back and do the same thing. I think we see this more obviously in kids. But how many times as adults is that our, our attitude? I'm not going to do that again. I won't ever lose my temper again. And we say, I'm sorry. And then the next chance we get, we do it again. You see, repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit that happens in us that leads us to take action, to stop doing that thing that we've been doing. What I want you to not miss here is Jesus hasn't left the Ephesian church. He starts off with, I'm walking around. Walking among them. He has a message for them. Even though they've lost their first love, he's still talking with them. And I think in that, Jesus is actually modeling for us what it looks like to love. And he's not left us either. For those who do this, for the Ephesians church, if they remember, if they repent, and they take action, Jesus says, one day you'll be with me in paradise. And he describes paradise at the end of Revelation 22. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and his servants will be worshiping him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. He promises to restore all things to the way they once were. And that we will be in perfect relationship with him. With no barrier. Church, our beliefs matter. 
the Ephesian, the Ephesian church, is praised for repeatedly holding fast to what they believe, for not giving up. However, right beliefs without love is legalism. And I think it's what's turning the world around us off. Autopilot faith needs to die as we prioritize our lives to love God and love others. In what ways has your faith been on autopilot in the middle of this pandemic? We have to first love God. And we have to let the love that we experience through him flow through us to help us to love others. I actually think the pandemic's given us a chance. A chance to reset our priorities. A chance to turn off autopilot and be intentional about how we decide to spend our time. Maybe that means investing in a time of deep prayer and conversation with the God who loves us. Maybe that means carving time out of our lives to spend time reading his word, not for knowledge, but so we can be reminded of how much we're loved and who he says we are. We have an opportunity, church, to turn autopilot off and to begin to create some new routines. So as we close today, I want to close a little differently. I want to close giving you a chance to have a conversation with the God who loves you. To be honest, it's a conversation between you and God. Nobody else is going to hear it. So wherever you are, close your eyes. And I'm going to give you a couple prompts, and you can pray however you want. But as we begin this time of prayer, I want to challenge you to ask forgiveness for the ways that your faith has been on autopilot. What do you need to say, God, I'm sorry? Let's pray. As you confess those sins, spend some time now asking God to build a passionate love for him and for your neighbor in your heart, in your life. Ask him to help you change your routines. The way you spend time, the way you prioritize things. Spend time talking to him about that. Lastly, ask him for courage to step out of those old routines and into new routines of sacrificial love. Courage to love the people who's hard for you to love. Courage to change. God, we are so thankful that you want to be in relationship with us. 
God, we're thankful that you sent your son to die on a cross, that we can be in relationship with you, that we can experience forgiveness. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you that you are merciful, that you are forgiving, that you are gracious with us, that you're patient. God, thank you for the truth of the gospel, for the fact that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you sent your son to die for us. Thank you for the ways that you have designed that we would live, that you know are best for us. Thank you for those beliefs, those truths that we hold fast to. And God, we're sorry. We're sorry that through one thing or another, our love has slipped away from you. It's just not as hot as it used to be. God, we pray that you would use your Holy Spirit at work in our lives to build a fire in our hearts, to rekindle that passion, to reignite that love. That we would burn for you. And God, that that love for you would drive us to serve those around us, to look for opportunities to love people and to care for them. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we close today, I have three challenges for you. Who do you need to apologize to for the legalistic or unloving ways that you have treated them? Is there anybody who comes to mind that you need to say, I'm sorry? I want to challenge you to do that this week. Second, How will your love for your neighbor look different this week as you come back to your first love and you remember how deeply you are loved by God? And last, who will you share the things you prayed about with so they can hold you accountable, so they can ask you how you're doing, so they can encourage you in your walk with Jesus? Church, I actually hope we don't ever go back to life the way it used to be. I hope autopilot's broken forever. And we may never gather like we did before as a church, but that should not change our passion to love God and the people around us. And maybe in this time, God is building in our hearts and in our lives space and time to be able to love our neighbors like we've never been able to before. And as the church leaves the building, as the church lives in your living rooms and in your neighborhoods, maybe he's going to do something amazing that we can't even imagine. As we close our time together, would you pray with me the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.